0: Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of James. We're continuing our James series. We just started last week, Faith Works, in the book of James. James is going to challenge us every week about the realness, the solidness of our faith. Who are we trusting? Are we trusting ourselves? Or are we trusting in God? Um, this week, we're calling it Rejoice During Trials. Rejoice During Trials. One of the First, big, difficult sayings of James starting out here in verse 2 will be in James 1 2 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs in front of you, and we're going to be on page 1011 in those black Bibles. Trials uh, don't mean that God is out of control. That's what we want to think, that's what we worry, but trials do not mean that God is out of control. We can rejoice during trials because God is still good. It's an opportunity to see that our faith is not in just our circumstances, but that our faith is actually in God himself. So let me read uh, James. We'll be in, again, verses 2 through 12. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking In nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us this morning. God, we ask for your help, and I pray especially for those that are here in the midst of a severe trial. There are some here this morning that that feel like they're at rock bottom, that they're absolutely broken, and I pray that your spirit would meet us here. We ask, because you are generous, that you would come here and be with us, that your spirit would help us, your spirit would comfort us in the midst of our difficulty and our pain, and help us to hear that you're good, despite our circumstances. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, about 25 years ago, I was 17, and I went to my first Christian camp. It was a summer camp with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, I was about to go into my senior year in high school, and I was kind of excited, because I'd never been to a camp like this before, but I was also skeptical, Wasn't really sure what to think. I was kind of a melancholy kid, so kind of went in a little skeptical, not sure what to make of the whole thing. I was pretty moody and really somewhat depressed because I'd had these nagging injuries that were making it difficult for me to enjoy the full glory of uh, athletic achievement, right? I was an athlete. I wanted to be a dominant athlete. But I was really just a mediocre athlete because I had nagging back and shoulder problems. So I went to the camp really kind of obsessed with my own problems, feeling sorry for myself, feeling sad, um, worried, wondering if my religion, which at the time was sports, was going to work for me and doubting that it was. So then at the camp, there were a lot of guys, there were a lot of speakers and a lot of leaders that were these great, incredible college athletes that also love Jesus. And so I remember thinking at the beginning, like, yeah, that's what I want. I want to be this great athlete and also love Jesus. I want to have everything and also serve Jesus. I want to have it all. Um, But the Lord was breaking me of my faith in sport to help me to see that he was better. There was one speaker that had the biggest impact on me at that camp, and he wasn't like any of the other speakers. He wasn't like any of the other role models there. All these other guys were big, burly, beefy, muscular college athletes. This one speaker was confined to a wheelchair. Um, he had formerly been an athlete, but he'd broken his back, I think, in a diving accident. So he was now a paraplegic and was paralyzed uh, from the neck down, had uh Weak control, even of his head and his ability to speak, but he could speak, but he couldn't use his arms, he couldn't use his legs. And the reason he had such a huge impact on me was because he had a supernatural joy. He had a joy that was just overwhelming, he had a joy that couldn't be stopped. And so here I was feeling bad because of a workable arm and a workable back that wasn't as strong as I wanted it to be. And here he was just overflowing with joy but having a body that really couldn't do anything. And I recognized through him and through meeting him and through knowing him and through hearing him speak that it was possible to have joy in the Lord that was separate from the painful circumstances that we might be going through. And at that point, my life took a huge turn because I, I wanted that joy. I wanted that joy, and that was kind of a breakthrough for me being able to then, see that Jesus was really worth it. He was really better than anything my circumstances could offer. And I believe James is calling us to that kind of joy. He's not calling us to rejoice in the circumstances themselves, right? Like the circumstances are joy. We want to be careful that we don't go to the extreme of like power of positive thinking weirdness, where we say good things are bad and bad things are good. You know, we just start speaking mumbo jumbo. It's It's during difficulties, it's during trials we can rejoice in Jesus. Those difficulties and those trials can be good only in the sense that that pain strips away our faith in the circumstances and forces us to test our faith and see that our faith is actually in God and not in the circumstances. See, the problem is when your circumstances are perfect, your faith can be in the circumstances instead of God. And sometimes God gives us the benefit of stripping away those circumstances through painful trials to see that he's better than everything else. So we have this inclusio is what it's called sometimes. You can call it bookends or maybe a wraparound where James starts in verse 12 and ends or starts in verse two and then ends in verse 12 with really the same idea. So I want to show you that again in verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then in verse 12, He says this Blessed or happy or joyful is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So, to be steadfast in our faith and our trust that God is good in the midst of difficulties will actually lead us to a true joy, a real happiness. A joy that can even be mingled with sorrow, with sadness over the circumstances themselves. But we can have joy in something that's better than our circumstances. Well, the first thing that I want us to see in the text here is that joy during trials is a fight. It's a fight. It's not something easy, and we need to be very careful that we don't take these verses out of context and then use them to bludgeon our friends in the name of Jesus, right? When your friend is struggling and crying and hurting and they're facing disease or divorce or some kind of disaster, you don't come to them and say, rejoice in the Lord, right? You want to be very careful with how you handle the Scripture when it comes to exhorting your buddies. We always want to start first with the words of Romans. It says, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. So when your friends are weeping, the first thing you do is you come alongside them and you weep with them. And then as they are able and as you are able, we listen to the words of James. It says, you know what, even though we're weeping, even though these circumstances genuinely are terrible, We have a savior that's better than these circumstances and we can rejoice in him. So we need to be careful how we handle this. And I would say we wanna primarily listen to this as James' words for us, not think of it as words for us to speak to somebody else. So he's speaking to us and he challenges us to rejoice during the trial, to rejoice during the trial. And we need to recognize that it's not easy. We have to fight to rejoice in God. We have to fight to rejoice that God really is good to rejoice in the fact that God really is sovereign, to rejoice in the fact that God really is trustworthy, even though our circumstances may be all wrong. Not, I love trials, but I love God during trials. You see the difference? Trials are an opportunity for us to say, I really love God. I hate this trial, but I love God. And this trial is showing me that I don't just love God for the circumstances, but I love him no matter what. So I'm going to delight in him, and that's a fight. So again, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers. That word count uh, could be translated even as lead. Um, It's a decisive word. Consider, reckon is how it's translated a lot of times. Decide that even though this is terrible and painful, I'm going to have joy in God. So I'm gonna do something decisive here. I'm gonna do something against my nature and decide that I can still rejoice even though this trial is terrible. Count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds. As Christians, we're apt to think, well, trials are for the weak or the dumb or for the less holy, right? Those of us that have our stuff together, we don't go through trials, right? Do you ever think that until the trial happens? Or sometimes when the trial happens, you think, oh, no, there's something wrong with me. He says when, when you meet trials. This isn't if, this isn't just for the junior Christians that have trials, but the super Christians don't have to worry about it. He says, when, when you meet trials of various kinds, you will meet trials, you will go through trials. We don't live in heaven yet. We don't live in heaven yet. We live still in this broken world. We live in the overlapping of the ages where Jesus has already decisively defeated sin and death, but it hasn't all come to perfect completion yet. We're still looking forward to him wrapping all things up. So we will face trials. You're probably in the midst of some sort of trial right now, we about to face a trial or just coming out of a trial. It's when, not if. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word testing there is a word that would be used for testing gold, for proving gold. And you know, in the ancient world, when they would make, I guess they still do it this way in the modern world, but when you, when you uh, purify gold, you melt it. So you melt away all the other junk out of this chunk of gold that you might find found on the ground, and the gold separates from everything else. So the trial is like testing, proving the gold. It tests and proves our faith. It tests and proves our faith, which produces steadfastness. And he says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what he doesn't mean here, he does not mean that if you persevere or endure or have steadfastness in your faith through that trial, that then you will be absolutely perfect perfect in a holiness sense of you never will sin again. This word perfect is uh, something more like finished or mature or whole. So this is going to lead to fruitfulness and maturity in our lives. The saints that you want to be around, the Christians that you want to get to know, are people that have faced hard things in their life and continued to trust God, continued to grow in him. You want to be around saints that have suffered. You don't have as much to learn from saints that have never suffered. They just don't have as much to tell you. But those who have suffered and who have stood fast and trusted the Lord have have something to teach us. They're fruitful. They're like mighty oaks. They're strong, and they have something to give us. So we've got this idea of counting it, joy. And my favorite word here is steadfast. In the other translations, you might have endurance or persevere, which are fine translations and perfectly reasonable Uh, I like steadfast because it's a little more of a word picture. Uh, So that would be in English, stand fast. And fast in in old English was like to be glued to something, okay? To be gripping something really strong. The the Greek word is hupomeno, which is like uh, a uh, strengthening of the word remain. And what it would be used in was in a military context for like a, a Roman soldier who would stand his ground, so stand fast would be the idea of digging in with your cleats. So, you know, Roman soldiers wore cleats. They had combat boots that were kind of like a sandal boot type thing that had iron nails going through the leather on the bottom. So they basically wore combat boot cleat type things. There are some ancient ones that have been found, and they varied them over the years, the production of them. Sometimes they were more like simple sandals with, with iron cleats on the bottom. Sometimes they were more like boots, and they varied it over the years. In our modern world, we know the cleat uh, through sports. We use cleats in sports, right? Cleat has a little thing sticking on the bottom so you can dig into the ground. And so this word steadfast, to stand fast, would be to dig in and hold your position as a soldier or to gain traction. I have coached football a lot, and you have to teach kids to dig in, right? Kids just naturally want to stand up straight, and when you run into somebody full speed standing up straight, you just fall down, Right? But if you get down, you, you kind of start to take on the strength of the earth. You know, the earth is like a big ball of dirt, right? Um, and it's really, really, really big and compared to a little human running around on top of it. And so your goal in sport is to dig down your cleats into the ground to, to take on the strength of the ground. It's not your strength. It's the ground's strength. So it's this beautiful word picture that James gives us and is used throughout the New Testament Perseverance, endurance, is, is digging in, digging into that foundation, who Jesus is as our solid rock that we build our lives on, God being the one that we sink our roots into. So faith and trust, another way of saying trusting God, is digging in more deeply to him. When everything else falls apart, when everything else is swept away, we're digging more deeply into this sovereign God of grace who loves us, and we're trusting him and him alone. Because when our circumstances have been blown away, we don't have anything else to trust in, right? So James says, consider this an opportunity to rejoice in the Lord, but recognize it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a struggle. It's not easy, but as everything else is stripped away, we begin to dig in more deeply to who God is. So the application is for us to fight for joy right, to fight to rejoice that God is really good, to fight to continue to believe that God is sovereign even though everything seems to be going wrong, to fight to trust that he really is kind and good. So again, not I love trials, but during trials, joy is I love God in the midst of these trials. So how do we do this? Historically, the church would say that one of the ways that we stand fast and fight to rejoice in God is through what is called the means of grace. Uh, The means of grace is kind of a fancy, old-fashioned way of saying that there are certain ways that God communicates his grace to us. Jesus gives us communion. We'll celebrate communion today, which is a reminder. It's a way for us to dig into the gospel. Jesus bled for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus was broken for me. Or the preaching of the word, just the proclamation that Jesus is good. He's better than all your other circumstances. He's the only thing that can save you. Your friendships can't save you. Your money can't save you. Your health can't save you. Your respect can't save you. Your job can't save you. But Jesus can save you. Jesus loves you. Jesus will save you. And so trials are an opportunity for us to dig into him. And the proclamation of the world is a a proclamation of the word is an opportunity for us to dig in more deeply to that reality. Say, yes, I, I believe that again. Another thing that we do as God's people is we gather to sing praises to him. And this is another means for us to dig in more deeply to that reality. It's interesting. There's a lot of psychological and sociological research that shows that things that you speak out loud, you actually begin to believe more. And so be careful about the negative things that you speak out loud. Be careful about speaking lies of of condemnation and untruths about God. Be careful even of sarcasm. I have to be very careful of that. I love... Sarcasm, I love that kind of humor, but you have to be careful of the words that you say. And we don't want to go to the extreme of of like word, faith, movement, magic mumbo-jumbo with the words we say and positive confession. Some of that is just a little wacky, okay? But we see there's real benefits in speaking the truth of the gospel out loud. It's just the way God has made our bodies and our minds to connect through speaking out loud what is true. And so one of the gifts that God gives us is to come together as God's people and sing loudly that he's our only hope and that we don't trust in anything else. I would also point you another way to dig in to fight to rejoice during trials is the Psalms themselves, which is the most ancient songbook of the Bible. And we can use that both as a private prayer book, but also as an out loud songbook. Many of our songs are just translations of Psalms. And as you read through the Psalms, you see people of God clinging to to God, hoping in him in the midst of trials and difficulties. So it's a great section to to just camp out in, to read, to pray, to say out loud, to recite, to, to run back to in the midst of your tears and your pain and your difficulty, to remember and walk through with others who have gone before you, that God can be trusted even in the midst of our pain. I'd also really encourage you to just study and memorize scriptures that help you to focus in on the gospel itself. That, that is, that's the crossroads, Jesus giving his life for us. That's where we most clearly see that God is kind to us, even though we didn't deserve it. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So verses and passages of scriptures that help you to remember that and cling to that, study those, memorize those, so that you can remember in the midst of difficulty when, when everything's falling apart, that God is sovereign, that he's your good father, and he has graciously adopted you, and he loves you, and he's in control. Even though everything else may be going wrong, he is still good, and he still loves you. Cling to those truths. And that leads us to the next point, understanding that God really is gracious. So to rejoice during trials is a fight. It's a fight. It's a struggle, and that struggle is centered in us really Digging more into God than in our own strength and our own efforts. We dig more deeply into him. That's what steadfastness is. That's what faith is, trusting him, not ourselves. And so now we see that joy during trials is God's gift. Joy during trials is God's gift. Faith is not something that we get credit for. It's a gift. It's a gift that God gives us. It's a gift of acknowledging that God gets all the credit. So faith is kind of a paradox. It's us with open hands saying, God's my savior. I'm not my savior. It's us trusting in him instead of trusting in ourselves. It's a gift of his kindness and his graciousness. It's really interesting in this next section we're going to read, we see some overlaps with with other sections in the Bible. A lot of commentators notice that the book of James seems to be like a, a Christian commentary on the book of Proverbs. It also seems to be like a Christian commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so, of course, since the Bible is cohesive and it's all the same faith and the same Jesus, there's going to be overlap here. But it's really interesting to notice how when James talks about the Father being gracious and giving us the wisdom as a gift when we ask for it, that that reflects what Jesus said about the Father being gracious and giving us the Holy Spirit when we ask for it. So there's some really interesting overlaps here. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Jesus' words first, and then I'm going to read the passage from James. So, Jesus' words about the Father's uh, desire to give us good gifts, Jesus says this in Luke 11, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then here he connects it with a generous father. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he says, we earthly fathers, we're evil, and we're still kind of nice to our kids, right? We're evil, and we're still pretty nice to our kids. How much more will the real Father, the perfect Father, give us the gifts that we need? And Jesus says that that. That main gift that you need when you go asking, when you're struggling, when you're hurting, when you're crying, is you need the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. You need the gift of God himself to come into your life and help you to see things with his perspective. So now James says pretty much the exact same thing, but he uses the word wisdom. In the midst of that pain, we need the Holy Spirit, we need God's wisdom. And we see that those words are very parallel throughout the book of Proverbs in Paul and James in the words of Jesus. So verse 5, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So he had just finished telling us that if you have steadfastness, then you'll be mature, then you'll be complete, right? If you dig into who God is and you trust him, then that's going to result in maturity, and you will lack nothing. And now he says in verse 5, but if you lack, if you're not there yet, which is all of us, Right? All of us are like, I, God, I don't think I can do this. This is hard. God, help me. I don't, I don't know if I can trust you. This trial, I think, is too much. And so he says, okay, well, if you lack, ask the Father. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Trust that he's generous. He's, he's kind. And that is the essence of the gospel. The good news is that God paid for what we couldn't pay for. That God came down to earth and we'd made a big mess, and God's the one that's cleaned it up. And He adopts us into His family, not because we deserve to be adopted, but because He's kind and gracious to us and He loves us. And so He's a generous Father. He's a kind Father. So in the midst of your difficulties and your trials, don't, don't think these crazy, condemning thoughts of, oh no, I'm not rejoicing, so God hates me even more now. Ask Him for help. And God, I'm, I'm struggling. I know you're good, I know you're kind these circumstances are not kind, but I know you're kind. I know you're generous. I know you love to give good gifts. Ask him, and he delights to give. And then James goes on with some hard words here. These are difficult words, and so I want to spend a moment here in in the next few words in verse 6. He says, but let him ask in faith or trust with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You read those words, you feel like James just like punched you in the jaw, right? Because I don't know about you, but but I'm not always sure about everything. I doubt. I'm a doubter. I wonder. I have questions. Maybe that never happens to you, but that happens to me. And so he gives this picture of if you doubt, if you... If you don't trust completely, if you doubt at all, you're just like, you're lost at sea, man. You're toast. It's all over with. Game over. You're a loser. He has this, uh, I have this picture here of someone lost at sea. This is from the movie Unbroken. Uh, so this is these World War II heroes. They're, their plane gets shot down. They're in a raft. It's a really gripping movie because you just see these guys just getting sunburned and blistered and sharks are wanting to eat them. I mean, it is, it is rough. And James is saying that if you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea. You're just, you're just drifting. You're lost. And so this can be very unsettling, right? Because I think as modern people, we're, we're very doubt-oriented. We don't think, that of, think of that as a bad thing. I think also it can be confusing because uh, we think of the word doubt as kind of a passive thing, right? I don't know if you're like me, but I kind of think of doubt as, as like almost being neutral, it's not like a sinful thing. It's just kind of like, hey, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. That's, that's how I think of the word doubt. In the ancient sense, doubt has a stronger meaning than that. Doubt would be more like the philosophical sense of doubt. Um, the, the entire Enlightenment project is built off of Descartes, this ancient philosopher who used critical thinking and doubt to build his understanding of knowledge. Um, and you don't have to understand all that, but just know that doubt is, uh, in an ancient sense, it's an active thing that you do. And really, in the Greek, so that's just the English word doubt. In the Greek, it's even stronger. In in the Greek, the word doubt is diakrino, which means judgment. It means to actively say, "This is good, that's bad." And so, what he's telling us here is, don't actively say, "God is not good." I cannot trust him. Don't condemn God. Don't shake your fist at God. Don't say God is bad in the midst of your difficulty. Don't curse God, but trust that he's generous. He's kind. And I don't think this is like the unforgivable sin where if you got mad at God once, then you're toast. He's saying in the midst of that kind of attitude, as as you condemn God, you're lost. As you trust that God is not condemning to you, he's generous. And he comes to you without reproach. Read read that statement again, the positive statement in verse 5. If you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. So James is setting up a contrast here. The more we condemn God, the more we say, God, you don't care about me. You're not kind. You're not generous. The more we're just lost at sea, the more we're just abandoned. We're, we're just, we don't know what's going on. We're confused. We're flitting about. But the more that we trust in his goodness, the more that we say, God, I know you're good. I don't understand these circumstances, but I know that you're good. I know that I can trust you. That's us digging in steadfastness, digging into him. We're not digging into our circumstances. We're digging into him. So we're fighting for joy as we trust that really that fight is, has been won already by this gracious, loving God who gave himself for us, who came after us when we didn't care about him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of my favorite parables that's very convicting about this kind of doubt of God's character is the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And I've been very convicted by this over the years that when my life is going downhill, it's in those moments where I'm acting like the servant that just buried his talent. And when that servant buried his talent, his explanation to the master was, well, I buried it because I know that you're not fair and you take what doesn't belong to you. So I thought I should just bury it. And the master says, well, then I'll deal with you in accordance to what you believed about me. So we see this picture of the opposite of that is when we trust in God's goodness, he deals with us in generosity and in kindness and in grace. To trust God is to know that he is gracious. So I think, I think the application here that Paul is giving us is not so much about the state of our heart, but to take the risk of asking him for help. Again, a lot of us uh, get caught up in navel-gazing and do I have enough doubt or not enough doubt or do I have enough faith or not enough faith, and we, we start questioning our own internal heart. I would just say you break out of that by just saying, God, help me. God, help me. You ask him for help. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this uh, character named Aslan who's this big lion and he's supposed to represent Jesus. Jesus in all of his scariness and in all of his kindness. And the kids are having a debate. They're in a, they're in a difficult situation in one of the books and they're debating why Aslan hasn't come to help them. And they, they have this concept that he knows they're in trouble, but he hasn't come to help them yet. And one kid says, well, I think... He knows what we need. So if he wanted to help us, he would. And the other kid said, I think he likes to be asked. I think he likes to be asked. I just love that story because I'm like, ah, it's so simple, right? God wants us to ask him, ask him. He's a father that, that loves to give good gifts. So don't question your motives. Don't think about how good or bad your doubt or your faith is. Just ask him. Say God help me. I'm dying here. I, I don't think I can take another day of this trial. Will you help me? He will come to you, as Jesus said in Luke 11. He will give His Holy Spirit to those who ask. He may not magically transform your circumstance today, but He'll change your heart. He'll give Him. He'll give you more of Him. He'll give us more of Himself. So ask Him. Ask Him. The last thing I want us to to look at is that joy during trials is for everyone. He says this is not just an exclusive thing for super Christians, you know, those that really get it versus those that don't really get it. This is for everybody. This is for everybody. He says this in verse nine. It's for both rich and poor. It's for everybody. Verse nine says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So it's this eternal perspective. We look forward to, as we trust him, we'll receive this ultimate crown. We're looking forward to a day when everything will be made right. And so we have to trust him now that he is good, that he is gracious, and he's getting us there. And James says, you can actually rejoice in either kind of scenario, in your blessing or in your difficulty, if you're rich or if you're poor, you can rejoice in God's kindness. Look again at verse 9. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So those of you that are really struggling, those of you that are really poor, that are really broken, that are really going through difficulty, you can you can boast in your exaltation. He's, he's saying God's going to fix it more than you can ask or imagine. The inheritance of the saints is going to blow our minds. So our temporary suffering is overshadowed by this greater glory that's coming. And so that doesn't mean we love the suffering. That means we can trust him and we can boast in this exaltation that's coming. Those of us that are suffering, that are struggling, that are sick, our body is falling apart, our relationships are falling apart, our uh, economy is falling apart, whatever it may be in your circumstances, you trust that God's going to make all things right, that he's going to exalt you. And then he says the flip side is those of you who have things going really well, you can boast in the reality that it's just temporary. It, it doesn't make sense to us because basically we're all the rich guy, right? I mean, we, we think about I'm struggling, I'm... I'm the poor one. You know, when I'm talking to an audience this size, I know a lot of you are like, well, I'm the poor guy, and that guy that's sitting 10 seats over, he's the rich guy. Well, well, we're Americans, right? You're richer than like 90% of the world, the the poorest of you in the room right now. You're doing a lot better than most people in this world who who are literally starving right now. And so James is really speaking to us when he talks to the rich guy. We are the rich guy, and this is what he tells us. He says, let the rich boast in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of this pursuit. So we all know this illustration that he's giving because we live in central Texas, right? Things wither. The heat just kind of kills stuff around here. It's it's August, and we've enjoyed a little rain, but still, it's August, and things are dying. I have a picture here of some sunflowers that are withering. Flowers are fantastic, right? Like God, God invented flowers. We didn't come up with that. That was God's idea. And you can cut flowers and put them in a vase, and if they're the right kind of flower, they'll last for a while, but eventually they die, right? You have to throw them out. And their whole purpose in your life is just to be beautiful for a little while. That's what they're there for. They're not eternal. They're temporary. And he's saying that if you're rich, that if you have good things in your life, if you've got your stuff together, rejoice in the fact that you have this wonderful beauty and glory that'll just last for a few days. And then you'll burn up and it'll all be gone. we are like, what? Yeah. Because our hope is not in the now. Our hope is in the permanent glory. We're all headed for a permanent glory where we don't fade anymore, where we get to see Jesus face to face, where we don't sin anymore, where we're not uh, selfish anymore, where we love him perfectly. Ultimate joy is what we're headed for. That's where we're headed. So we fight for joy in the here and now, knowing that we're headed for ultimate joy. So those of us that are rich, we hold everything loosely. We just say, yeah. Yeah. God's given me this beauty. God's given me this glory. God's given me these wonderful circumstances, and my faith is not in my riches. My faith is not in my circumstances. I know I'm a flower, and I might be a flower that burns up in three days or in two weeks, but I'm going to burn up. So he says, the poor exalt in the fact they'll be lifted up. The rich exult in the fact that the glory they have is really temporary and fading. So no matter who we are, this joy is for everyone. It's for all of us. Because the joy is in him, it's not in our circumstances. Paul's saying, recognize your circumstances are temporary. If you're poor, your circumstances are temporary. If you're rich, your circumstances are temporary. And those those of us that are having the hardest time with this word to the rich are those of us that have put the most faith in our riches. So those of you, they're squirming that this is a painful thought. What, I'm going to lose my stuff? Yeah, you're going to die. You are going to die. Your health is not going to last forever. Your money is not going to last forever. Your relationships are not going to last forever. It's going to wither and die. So you better have a faith and a joy in something beyond your temporary circumstances. So he says, fight for joy, and it's for everyone. Those of us that are in good circumstances, those of us that are in bad circumstances. It's, it's for everyone. My wife and I have been watching the John Adams miniseries over the last several weeks, and we just watched the final episode. Um, a lot of death and dying in the final episode. My wife's face hurt really bad. A lot of tears, a lot of loss. Um, and there's this great scene at the end of it where you see John Adams learning this kind of steadfastness, learning this kind of joy. He just kind of starts rambling about, just wanting to just praise God and adore God and he just starts saying rejoice evermore rejoice evermore and it's like he's he's like a crazy old man but he's really who we should be you know it's like at the end of his life he's lost everything and all he has now is to rejoice in the lord he knows he's about to die as well i think it's a beautiful picture for us the more we lose the things of this world the more we can actually rejoice in who God is instead of just rejoicing In our circumstances. I know a lot of you may be thinking, "Uh, Dave, this is impossible. I cannot rejoice in trials. This is too hard. Again, I take you back to the second point. Ask God for his help. Ask God for his help. He gives the Holy Spirit because he's generous and he loves us. I want to point you to a second idea though, and that's look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as the one who did stand fast in our place when none of us could do it. When all of us failed, he took our place. He ran the course for us. In Hebrews 12, it's said this way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. It's that word steadfastness. Let us run with endurance with steadfastness the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter There's that other word, perfecter, the mature one, the complete one, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross or stood fast through the trial of the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him stood fast through the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Help us, Lord, to endure. Help us to stand fast in you. Help us to rejoice, not because we love trials, but to rejoice because you are good, no matter what trial we face. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you're not out of control, but you're a kind father that loves us. And we pray that you'd help us to continue to trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.